Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is John Lovett, and I am taking over Majority 54. We have a very special guest today, Jason Kander. (laughs) He is the host of this show, former Secretary of State of Missouri, your favorite blindfolded rifle assembling advocate for voting rights as the founder for Let America Vote. Jason, you have a new book. It is called Outside the Wire. What does that mean, uh, and what is the book about? Well, first of all, John, thank you for doing this. This is kind of like me inviting you over to my house so that you can cook me dinner. <laughs> so I certainly appreciate you doing it. Let's hope this goes better than that would go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be better than me cooking us dinner. I'm sure of that. But outside the wire uh, is a military term that means leaving the safety of the base. So like in Afghanistan, we used the term to mean, you know, going through the front gates, going into a, a more dangerous area. And I, I named the book that because... For me, once I had gone outside the wire for the first time and then later, you know, and did it several times during my deployment and then later went into politics, figuratively going outside the wire in politics just never felt like a particularly big deal to me. And and it's mm-hmm. it allowed me to, um, I guess, as people would put it, take more risks than a lot of people in politics. So one of the things you write about in the book is the experience of coming home after being in Afghanistan. And I think it's it's a very personal story for you. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what that was like? Sure. So it's funny because a friend of mine who I served with over there, I sent the book to them to read it, um, you know, like a mid-draft of it. And one of the things they said is they said, no matter what the editors say, don't change a word about what you wrote about coming home because it's really important people hear that. Um, and so what I wrote about was first with the caveat that a lot of people had uh, far more difficult experiences than I did. And and so I, I start with that. And that's important to recognize that as people read the book and they read about my experience, that they can see that it was on the on the minor side, right? So for me, I guess I came home and, uh, and I, I, it took me a little while to realize that over there, you sort of only use a, a limited uh, like number of emotions. Like it's sort of when you're in line waiting for food, you're bored. When you're with some of your friends over there and you're kind of playing cards or making fun of something, you're, you know, momentarily happy. Uh, and then sometimes you're asleep. And then sometimes you're outside the wire and you're you're scared at a level that I would describe. It's like a low simmering anger that gives you this focus. And then, you know, but there's not a lot of need for a lot of emotional nuance. You sort of kind of put that stuff away and you don't realize it till you come home because what happened is, you know, when everyone around you is kind of doing the same thing, that quickly becomes your idea of normal. So, for instance, I came home and and I noticed, in fact, actually right when uh, the airplane that carried me out of Afghanistan touched down in, in Qatar, I noticed like a twitch that started in my in my eyelid. 
And a doctor later told me, because that went on for about six months, and a doctor later told me that I had just sort of internalized all this stress, and it was finally just sort of seeping out of my system. Um, the so, doctor told me that mine was from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> well, I mean, trauma is trauma. <laughs> and, uh, Sorry. Yes. Sorry to be glib. Apologies for being glib. I continue. Don't, don't apologize. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 so I, what I talked about was just realizing that what seemed normal to me uh, while I was over there was not at all normal. I mean, things like volunteering to command a convoy to Bagram Air Base, sometimes because they had a Burger King trailer there. Now, at the time, that made perfect sense to me because it was a taste of home. Now I'm, I'm 37 years old. I'm a dad. I look back on that. I'm like, wow, I definitely risked my life for a Whopper, and I, I'm not even that into Whoppers. So it was about coming home and, and, and how that affected me and having to kind of figure that out, navigate that. You do say in the book that you are more of a Taco Bell person. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's something that we share. So you're, so you're back. Um, you are now, uh, you know, look, we can be honest here. There was a lot of speculation that you were going to run for president. Uh, now you've decided you're going to run for mayor of Kansas City uh, and go home and, uh, you know, help in your community. Can you just tell people about that decision and, and how it relates to, to what you write about in the book? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I read about in the book is one of the things I've talked about on this podcast a lot, which is the importance of, of grabbing an oar, just recognizing where you can make a difference, where you can make that difference now, and jumping in and doing it. I'm a fifth-generation Kansas Cityan. Uh, Diana and I are raising True, who's a sixth-generation one. Um, and so I care a lot about Kansas City, obviously. But also, I just look at it and I say, okay, we got to make sure that no matter where you live in town, no matter how you grew up, that you have an opportunity to succeed without having to move across town or out of city limits. And and I've always believed, and I've always said, and I said in the book, that the best argument for progressive values is progress that people can see and that they can feel. And that's a big part of what motivated me to, to run for mayor of my hometown. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. And, you know, in the book, one of the things I, I talk about is that this is not like politics, running for office. It's not West Wing. It's more parks and recreation. It is at every level. I think this is true. It is door to door. Uh, sometimes it's telemarketing. It's getting on the phone, <laughs> raising money and, and getting votes. Uh, and I'm getting to do that again. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on doors here in Kansas City, just like I have in the past. And, and it's, it's really exciting. And one of the points I make in the book for folks is that if one of the if if one of the things motivating you to get into politics is you think it's going to be like the West Wing, you think it's going to be really glamorous and big speeches all the time, it's probably not going to work out that well for you. It's 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 not glamorous. It's uh, it's work. But if you're willing to do it and it energizes you, then you can get an awful lot out of it. It's funny at the local level for Democrats, it's not the West Wing. It's Parks and Rec. And what Dan says about the Republicans is this White House is the plot of House of Cards with the cast of Veep. So, you know, <laughs> Perfectly there's a choice it. there. So one of the things you talk about a lot, one of the things you talk about in the book is, um, you know, integrity, authenticity, and and sort of maintaining that even in politics. We talk about this a lot on the podcast about, you know, politicians who spent a long time in Washington, they end up starting to sound the same and they don't sound like human beings. How do you make sure that as you run for office, you don't lose touch with how uh, human beings sound? Yeah, one of the biggest questions that I got that really went into me trying to answer it for people in the book was, no matter how people asked it, I think it was some version of, can I go into politics either as a candidate, as a, you know, a staffer, or just as a, as a part-time person who's, who's volunteering, can I go into it and not lose myself? 
You know, I think, and people yeah. have that question. They say, and because I think a lot of folks see politicians as people who are just acting, saying the things that they think they need to say. And one of the big points I try to get across and kind of a handbook I try to give people throughout the book is that actually, if you want to do this well, it's no different than just trying to be a good person. You go out there, you say what you believe because people can tell when you're not doing that. It's, it's really, it's about the courage not to act. And so the book is full of, frankly, embarrassing and sometimes humiliating <laughs> stories from my own experience. But I put them in there so that people can go about this without feeling that they're going to repeat them. They can navigate around those things. And also because some of them are pretty funny. But it's also just about demonstrating that there were plenty of times where people disagreed with me but chose to vote for me because they're like, well, that dude's telling me the truth. And that means this is far simpler than people make it out to be. They get all, I have a portion in the book where I talk about, you know, be a person, not a pretzel. You know, it's, it's real <laughs> simple. Like, don't spend all your time trying to figure out the right political answer. Instead, professional politics itself is actually about uh, making the right decision. And then the politics part is about managing the consequences of that decision. It's not about having politics be how you make the decision. And if you do that, you're not going to win every time. I, I talk in the book about the experience of losing an election, but you are far more likely to achieve the changes that you want to achieve. Um, yeah, I think you'd be a terrible political consultant in D.C., so that's something <laughs> you should just avoid as a career. So let's, Deal. let's, let's, <laughs> let's get to the excerpt. What, what is the... Um, what is the section of the book that we're going to be listening to? So I'm going to read the introduction to the book. Uh, it, it picks up um, with me uh, going outside the wire for the first time in Afghanistan and kind of really sets up the rest of the book. The, the way the book is set up is, it's, it's, as you saw, it's, it's little vignettes. It's, it's told not with yeah. any particular order. It is just here are the lessons that I've learned and here are the stories, sometimes funny, sometimes inspiring, sometimes ridiculous, that match each of those. But the introduction is is different. It's it's one long story about my first time outside the wire and all the things that sort of inspired that and what resulted from it. For me, um, I won't set it up too much because we're gonna I'm gonna read it. Uh well thank you, Jason. Uh and everybody should pick up Outside the Wire. It is a fascinating, honest reflection on what Jason has learned both in Afghanistan and in politics. And Jason, before we go to the excerpt, uh, where can people pick up the book? And I know there was something you wanted people to know as they're uh, making this purchase. They can go online and they can get it. They can get it at their local bookstore. But one thing they should know is that uh, right now, whether it's for pre-order or whether it's in the first week of sales, uh, Diana and I have decided that we want to use our platform in a positive way here. And in this case, the book, uh, just as we always do. And so for every book sold for the first week, uh, we are going to make a contribution to Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, and now let's get to the excerpt. Introduction. When you get ready to deploy, you go through a bunch of training. I did my convoy training during intelligence school with Humvees that weren't armored, but we were told you'll have the real deal when you get over there. The idea that it would be different over there or downrange was a pretty common refrain from the trainers at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. So when I got to Afghanistan and was preparing for my first convoy to the camp where I would be stationed, I was picturing the vehicles you see in the movies and on TV, big armored trucks or Humvees under a machine gun manned by a badass-looking infantryman the size of a house. After all the training and all the anticipation of being in a combat zone, I was feeling pretty tough in my battle rattle, body armor, Kevlar helmet, pistol on my hip, 
This is it, I thought. I'm finally going outside the wire. I didn't even have a rifle yet, but I felt like G.I. Joe. A Marine captain introduced himself as the convoy commander and went over what we were to do if we were attacked and who was in charge if he was killed during the roughly one-hour trip from Bagram Air Base to Camp Agers in Kabul. His rifle was hanging across his chest from a fancy sling, and his load-bearing vest was packed with extra magazines of ammunition. But while he was talking, I realized he was referring to the vehicles behind him, which were not at all what I had expected. Over there had become over here, but these were not armored Humvees with a big machine gun on top. In fact, they weren't Humvees at all, not even close. I realized we were about to traverse the sometimes IED-ridden open roads of Afghanistan in unarmored Mitsubishi Pajeros. An IED is an improvised explosive device, and a Mitsubishi Pajero is a mid-sized civilian sport utility vehicle, basically the Japanese equivalent of a Ford Escape. So I instantly felt a whole lot less tough. In fact, tough was now several country miles away from where I stood emotionally. This was, for the first time in my life, the raw physical fear of being killed. I was sweating, my heart was pounding, and my feet felt heavy as I climbed into the Pajero's gray cloth back seat. As the new guy, I was scrunched into the middle. I was trying to play it cool and decided I could best pull it off by not speaking or making eye contact with anyone. The Navy lieutenant next to me told me to take off my Kevlar helmet. I noticed I was the only one wearing it, so I took it off, but I apparently looked confused enough that another sailor, our driver, offered me an explanation about what happens when the bad guys can make out the helmet in a far-off silhouette. There's no armor at all on this vehicle, so if we get blown up, we're all going to die anyway. She drew a pistol from her thigh holster, pulled back the slide, and put a round into the chamber. If some Taliban asshole has his finger on an IED trigger just waiting for us, it's better if it takes an extra beat for him to spot a clown car of Americans. She slid the pistol into a holster on the chest of her body armor before turning the ignition key and starting the little SUV. The lieutenant next to me did the same with her pistol. Basically, if you wear that thing, she said, picking up where our driver had left off, he can see a bobblehead silhouette from a lot farther away and we go boom. Another Navy lieutenant, a guy in his late 30s, turned around to face me from the front passenger seat. There's no armor underneath us either, so some guys prefer to sit on their Kevlar. You know, just in case you survive and want to have kids. He turned back toward the front. Up to you, dude. I noticed Navy guy wasn't sitting on his Kevlar, so I thought it best to go with the flow and just placed mine at my feet. Each of them had introduced themselves a few minutes prior, but my brain was too scattered to memorize any of the names yet. I was too busy thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I thought about how crazy everyone back home thought I was, and for the first time, wondered if they were right. I had left behind a well-paying job as a lawyer that included a very safe office with a nice view of the Kansas City skyline. Bagels and donuts were free in the conference room on Friday mornings. My wife, Diana, was probably asleep right now in our bed in our ranch house in KC's quaint and historic Waldo neighborhood. As we slowly crept along the dirt roads of Bagram Air Base toward the front gates, my fellow carpoolers were chatting it up like it was any other road trip. So where are you from? How was your flight? How'd you like the landing? The colonel's excited to have a fellow army guy inbound. Ha, yeah, he's been surrounded by all us other branches lately. I hoped I was doing a passable job of pretending that I was not the most afraid I'd ever been in my life. When we passed through the front gates, our driver put her foot down and out we went into the wild beige yonder of a distinctly unfriendly looking dust bowl of one and two story buildings. It was quiet for a couple of minutes as each occupant of the car eyeballed every passing pedestrian and motorist 
performing multiple individual assessments per second. Soon the buildings became farther apart and then tapered off completely, and all I could see in any direction was a sparsely inhabited desert landscape with mountains visible on the horizons to our left and right. Like the moon with mountains, I thought to myself. I asked what the potential IED plan was, meaning what we were supposed to do if we saw something that could be a possible bomb buried in the road. Everyone just laughed morbidly and then told me the roads in Afghanistan were so messed up that, unlike in training, we just had to speed up and drive past hoping for the best. If we stopped to check out everything that looked suspicious, the trip would take forever and we'd never get to Kabul. I remember feeling pretty nauseous right about then. And as we bumped along for close to an hour, my mouth gradually became as dry as the landscape. We entered Kabul through a big dusty traffic circle that I recognized from pictures. The male Navy lieutenant in the front seat casually mentioned that there had been a whole bunch of suicide bombings there in the last couple of weeks. As we wove aggressively through Kabul's crowded traffic, my physical fear had now been joined by a social fear because I was becoming concerned about the very real possibility I might throw up on all my new co-workers. Fortunately, we arrived safely and my breakfast stayed in my stomach. In retrospect, the first of my many times outside the wire was entirely unremarkable, yet it was still a formative experience in my life, because if you've been outside the wire even once, your perspective is forever changed. But let's return to the question I'd asked myself just before rolling out the front gates. What the hell am I doing here? Like a lot of veterans my age, my life is easily divided into two parts, before and after 9-11. Life before 9-11 was pretty simple. My parents instilled in me a deep-rooted sense of duty and obligation through the power of their example. Mom and dad first met while working together as juvenile probation officers in Kansas City, Kansas, where my dad also worked nights as a cop. I was four when they adopted Jeff, my younger brother, and years later they began taking in neighborhood boys whose families were struggling. They never sat Jeff and me down at the kitchen table to have a family meeting about these decisions. They just made up another bed and added a place setting at the dinner table. So I grew up with a strong crew of what we referred to as unofficial foster brothers, close to my own age, all of whom remain my friends. We lived on the semi-rural western edge of Shawnee, Kansas, a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, which was the big city my family had called home for four generations. There's nothing I would change about the way I grew up. Like anybody else, I experienced the regular childhood and teenage stress of figuring out where I fit in, tried my best to understand girls, and learned how much trouble I could get into and out of with a delicate cocktail of sarcasm and charm. My best friends came home from school with me every night, and they were there in the morning when I woke up. Life was like a slumber party, interrupted only by school and sports. My dad, who for most of my childhood owned and operated a private security company, even coached our baseball team. Baseball was at the center of everything, from my friend group to my daydreams. I was already five foot ten by eighth grade, so I didn't realize everyone else was about to catch up to me on the field. Two years and only one inch later, I realized I was a lot better at arguing than I was at baseball, so I focused on debate during the school year and made my summers all about baseball, knowing my career on the diamond would not extend into my college years. By the fall of 2001, I was 20 years old and thought I had a pretty solid plan for the next few years of my life. I was in my final year of college at American University in Washington, D.C., and my girlfriend, Diana, was in her senior year, too, but she was back home at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. We'd been a couple since our first date in high school, my senior prom, but we'd also been apart for all of college, and being together was at the top of our list. I was excited about going to law school, marrying Diana, moving home to Kansas City, and practicing law. 
I figured I might eventually run for office, but I didn't really know what that meant yet. Joining the military was something I talked about a fair amount, but it was in the someday category of my life. I had always looked up to people, including my parents, who had served. I loved seeing my dad's police uniform and badge, and as a kid, I would stand in front of the mirror practicing my salute while wearing a uniform shirt from his security company. My great-grandfather and grandfather had served in World War I and World War II, respectively. Neither had a military career, per se, but when war broke out, they were of age, so they signed up, went off to war, did their duty, and then went back to their lives. That simple, practical act of patriotism just made a lot of sense to me. The idea that you don't have to already be a soldier to serve your country when it goes to war. Despite my admiration for those who had served, I'm not sure whether I was on a path to ever actually do it. As a college student, I was insecure about the fact that I'd done nothing to prove myself. I knew the toughest foes I'd ever faced down were high school pitchers and college debaters. In emails home to Diana, I'd express self-doubt, posing questions such as, is a man really a man if he's never been tested? On the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, I was in D.C. walking across American's campus headed for a chemistry class when I overheard someone say a second plane had hit the towers. I stepped inside the student center, found a television, and watched as the anchor broke the news of a plane crashing into the Pentagon. I was overcome with a single thought that rang in my head like a refrain. I have to do something. The phone lines were down, so I headed to my apartment to fire off a few quick emails to reassure Diana and my family that I was safe. My roommates and I climbed into my pickup truck and drove down near the Capitol because we had heard that they needed people to give blood. The streets were empty, and for a kid who grew up in Shawnee and thought D.C. was the busiest city in the world, it was completely surreal. We found our destination and realized one of the reasons the streets were clear was that a lot of people had the same idea as we did. I don't know how long we stood in that blood donation line, but it felt like a couple of hours at least. After all that time speculating among ourselves about what was happening, this was before everyone had Twitter in the palm of their hands, a nurse came out and told us they couldn't take any more blood. Thanks for waiting for so long, she said. I hope you can find some other way to help. My burning sense of obligation to do something grew even greater. I decided right then and there that I would join the military. I had no idea what that meant yet, but I was determined to see it through. When I got back to my apartment, each of my family members had replied to my emails. Just like the emails a lot of Americans exchanged that day, they were mostly just letting me know they loved me. One of my foster brothers, Justin, who now lived in Denver, ended his email, I'm sure you're going to join the military, but please do not join today. That night, when the phone started working again, I told Diana that we had been turned away at the blood bank and I had decided to join the military. Her response was imminently practical. Can't you just go back and see if they can take blood tomorrow? The next morning, I went running for the first time in years. I timed my run to see where it stacked up against the military fitness standards, and so began a five-year sprint that had led me all the way into the front gates of Camp Eggers in Kabul. Over the coming months, I would spend time outside the wire about four days a week, sometimes on convoys to Bagram Air Base and back. After a while, I even graduated to the occasional role of convoy commander. The convoys came to feel pretty normal to me. It was still scary, but not, what am I doing here, scary. Just extra alert, slightly elevated adrenaline scary. Sometimes it felt so routine that I'd have to make conversation with the driver just to avoid nodding off. One such convoy to Bagram near the end of my tour stands out. It was basically the same trip I had taken to Camp Eggers a few months before. Just like with my first convoy, I was standing there in my battle rattle, pistol on my hip, 
but a lot had changed. Unlike before, I had a rifle slung over my shoulder, a few months of dust on my boots, and I was now the convoy commander. I stood in front of a small gaggle of soldiers, all of whom had either just arrived or just returned to Afghanistan from mid-tour leave. Same little unarmored Mitsubishi Pajeros awaiting us, but this time I had my back to them because I was facing the group that was about to ride down to Camp Eggers. I explained what to do if we were attacked or if there was an IED, and I let it be known who would be in charge if I got killed. I asked for a show of hands to identify the certified combat lifesavers and made sure to divide them equally into separate vehicles. I was wrapping up the convoy brief when I saw a kid who didn't look like he needed to shave more than twice a week, staring back at me on what was obviously, judging by the tension on his face, his first or second day in Afghanistan. His uniform looked brand new, and he was wearing his Kevlar helmet and even had the shoulder plates on his body armor. His eyes were wide and his face was turning a light shade of green. I was thinking, so that's what I looked like on my first day? Damn. I locked and loaded my rifle, pulled my pistol from my hip holster, chambered around, and slid it into the holster on my vest so that I could reach it while seated if necessary, and climbed into the front passenger seat of the lead vehicle. I watched the green-faced kid to see what he'd do, whether he'd get in the SUV. He was looking down at the ground with his hands on his hips. He had likely figured out that nobody would say anything if he just let himself get sick and got on the schedule for some other convoy. He could put it off and hope for armored vehicles, or even ask around about a helicopter ride to Kabul. He lifted his head, took a deep breath, slugged down some water, and climbed into the SUV in a seat right behind me. As we rolled through the front gate for his first trip outside the wire, all I could think was, man, I hope this kid doesn't puke on me. I think about that kid a lot. I think about his path to that moment, how he volunteered to sign up after 9-11, knowing he'd probably end up in a place like Afghanistan, in that seat behind me on his way outside the wire, and in that moment, he chose to put the job first and get in the Pajero. A few minutes earlier, as he stood there composing himself, he knew the right thing to do, and he knew the easy thing to do. That kid chose to do the right thing, even though it wasn't easy. I never got his name, and I never saw him again after that day, but as a politician, every time I face a hard choice on a tough or unpopular issue, I imagine trying to convince that kid what I'm doing now is scary or difficult. I've never been able to picture him buying that argument. I think of him as exactly what we need more of in American politics. People who are willing to get in the SUV because they know it's more important than it is scary. I think all the time about so many of the people I served with in the Army, and I don't mean they're in my thoughts or some other trite throwaway line politicians use about veterans. I mean I think about them as if they're still next to me, judging my decisions, sizing up my moral courage. Politicians are inundated with feedback that encourages self-importance and rewards self-preservation. So it helps to keep my fellow service members in the front of my mind as people who made more important decisions by lunch than most politicians, including me, make in a week. I'm frustrated knowing this cautious, selfish, face-saving approach to politics has become the norm because that perception keeps good people away. With what's going on in America right now, it's easy to look at the issues you care about, see an impossibly uphill battle, and lose the will to fight. But you picked up this book because you have at least a passing interest in changing the world. Whether it's running for office, working on a campaign, or leaving your fancy job to join a nonprofit, there's something you've always hoped you might do someday. I hope after reading this book, you decide to make that someday today because the world needs you. We have enough people in public life 
who never go outside the wire. They fortify their districts with gerrymandered lines and camouflage their beliefs behind meaningless platitudes, and therefore, they'll never advance any cause beyond their own careers. You don't have to accept the petty smallness of modern American politics in order to succeed. In life and in politics, the most important work is often that which happens outside the wire. If you're always safe in your career, you're not doing much to help anyone other than yourself. Between my time in uniform and my time in elected office, I've learned, often the hard way, valuable lessons about everyday courage. This book, among other things, lays out what Taco Bell taught me about enjoying life, what an Adam Sandler movie taught me about admitting mistakes, and what a heckler and a crowd taught me about humility. In dozens of bite-sized military and political stories of failure, embarrassment, and success, you're going to learn what I've learned. It might save you some time and some humiliation. A year and a half after I came home from Afghanistan, I was elected to the Missouri House of Representatives. In my first term, I set out to reform the campaign finance and ethics laws of the state. I was a freshman member of the minority party and one of the only members who refused personal gifts from lobbyists in a state with virtually no ethics or campaign laws. My zeal for cleaning up Jefferson City was not exactly welcomed by the political establishment in either party. I lost count of how many times a fellow legislator told me they agreed with me and appreciated what I was doing, but they just couldn't afford to help me. They were afraid of risking their chairmanship or their committee assignment or, in some cases, their office space or their parking spot. If I walked by while the Speaker of the House was talking to someone in the hallway, he'd interrupt himself to point me out using his adorable nickname for me, that piece of shit right there. In hopes of intimidating me into backing off my push for reform, the leadership would refuse to recognize me to speak on the floor, kill my bills as soon as I'd file them, and once they even submitted a phony ethics complaint against me. Maybe it was easier for me to champion this issue because I was so new to politics. I didn't have a long career to lose. Maybe I just wasn't willing to surrender on one of the first big issues I tackled. Or maybe it was just that I was thinking of that green-faced kid who got in the SUV. But I stuck with it. In 2016, Missourians passed a constitutional amendment that included quite a few of the reforms that I introduced way back in 2010. And there's another initiative headed for the 2018 ballot. So no, I did not choose the title Outside the Wire because I think I'm some sort of badass war hero. In fact, I'm very far from it. And I know that a lot of people have done much more than I ever did. I've spent a lot more time figuratively outside the wire in politics than I literally did in the military. But I'd be a very different politician if I had not first been a soldier. Anyone would be. If you picked up this book hoping for a bunch of war stories, then you'll be disappointed. I knew a ton of people in the Army who did more than me, and my greatest fear in writing this book was that I would somehow disrespect them in the process of puffing myself up. I had one four-month deployment during which I never had to kill anyone, and I came home unharmed. So my gratitude is informed by survivor's guilt. That's why I believe the state of our democracy and the triviality of our politics is the ultimate slap in the face to the scores of veterans who gave so much more of themselves than I did. Yes, I am fed up with politicians for whom the whole point of politics is to stay in politics. But I'm also excited by a new generation of American leaders who have voluntarily been through something in their lives more difficult than a re-election campaign. If you're thinking of getting involved in politics or public service to do something rather than be something, then you're every bit as valuable to this nation as that kid who had the courage to get in the Pajero. When it comes to serving others, 
nothing productive happens inside the wire. If your objective is simply political or social survival, you can probably stick around a long time. But to what end? If you want to be a part of changing the world, well, you'll eventually have to roll through the front gate. This has been a special Majority 54. Uh, the book is Outside the Wire by Jason Kander. I'm John Lovett, but don't worry. Next week, your regular host, Jason Kander, will return. And uh, thanks for listening. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.